Welcome to another podcast from the Oxford International Centre for Publishing Studies at Oxford Brookes University. This session was recorded on the 21st of October 2014 in the John Henry Brooks Lecture Theatre. Our guest was Michael Basker, the Digital Publishing Director at Profile Books and author of The Content Machine. This is actually a really massive, epic um, presentation that is, is pretty much hot off the press. Um, so what you're going to get, though, is the edited highlights, because we've only got, um, I think, a very short amount of time. Um, but the, the kind of the core of this is asking, um, what is it that digital publishers do? What is digital publishing uh, all about? We've all heard all of these cliches about how this is the kind of biggest transformation um, in, in the book world since the time of Gutenberg. Um, and I think that despite that being a kind of terrible cliche, it's still a, a truth as well. Um, and so this is just uh, a kind of collective thoughts about all of that. Um, so first, just a bit of background um, about how I ended up doing what I do. I started off working in a literary agency, Rogers Coleridge and White. Um, I then worked for Macmillan Publishing, and I was pretty much the first person on their digital team. Um, and I was sort of digital editor there. And then I joined Profile Books uh, about five years ago, which is uh, an independent publisher based in London. Um, but then I've always sort of been doing other stuff. So, you know, I some, sort of thought it would be a good idea to write a book about publishing and all of that kind of thing. Um, and now, actually, I'm also looking at doing a new book, uh, which is about the idea of curation. Um, because I started getting really annoyed, because I kept hearing everyone using this silly buzzword all the time, curation. I thought, that's sort of ridiculous. But then I started thinking about it more and more, and it started to make a lot more sense. And actually, what we tend to have in so many contexts uh, including, of course, the book world, is we have too much, we have too many books. And actually, in that kind of context, the value of curation, of choosing and arranging, really goes up. So I ended up thinking it was a much more interesting idea than I did at first. Um, so the core, really, of what I'm interested in, anyway, is books and the internet, and how this whole book world has kind of started to collide with the world of the internet. And these have always been my passions, um, and it's been a kind of it's been a great privilege to sort of watch them coming together and to try and push it in various ways. So I think a bit later uh, I'll try and talk about some of the ways in which we've, we've tried to meld um, books and the internet. And actually, one of my authors is sitting here today, and we're working on a project that um, is also about trying to do new things with books that really makes the most of all of these digital opportunities we've had but without forgetting what makes books themselves so good in the first place. Um, so the context and background. Really what you're going to get now is uh, an edited version of my book. Um, and what that is about is trying to, um, trying to build a theory of publishing. And I can tell you most publishers aren't really interested in building a theory of publishing. They just want to get on with the job and do it. Um, but I actually thought, hold on a minute. Maybe we do need a theory of publishing. Why? Um, firstly, because it's actually difficult to say what publishing is in the first place. Um, you look throughout history, and publishing is constantly changing. It's never standing still. What publishing meant in one era doesn't mean that it's the same as in another. What publishing meant in the 15th century wasn't the same as what it meant in the 19th century. Yet there's still this common thread. 
Um, publishing differs according to the sector. If you're talking about scientific publishing or newspaper publishing, that's a very different thing to publishing novels or publishing um, poetry. Uh, it also differs geographically. Um, publishing in different countries could be extremely different. And although we live in this age of globalization, there are still all these differences. And I can tell you, for example, you go to a publishing house in France, and it will be unrecognizable to one in London. Oh, sorry. So, actually, there's all of these different geographic things as well. And lastly, um, you can publish computer games, you can publish music, you can publish all of this other stuff. And I think that's really interesting. So, even before anything, it's not obvious what publishing is and what it means. So, as I say, most publishers don't really think this is a kind of an issue, and it's not. But it is a sort of interesting problem. But actually, what we've got now is a much more pressing issue. Because the network makes it really complicated, because now, in the digital age, anyone can be a publisher. We can all go and publish our books tomorrow. So I think there's this really important question. If anyone can be a publisher, what makes you a publisher in the first place? If anyone can be a publisher, how are the publishers, how are people like me, how are we going to justify our existence in the world? So why is the network the key thing? Because this intermediation, um, there's always this great narrative about digital technology that it disrupts everything. Um, and that's true in some ways, but it's not true in others. Actually, just the fact of having a computer, that doesn't necessarily disrupt publishing at all. Actually, it's just a bit of a help, it's a bit of a tool. Um, what is the disruptive force to traditional publishing is this idea of a network. It's the fact that our publishers are intermediaries, and now there's a network that exists out there that can bypass the intermediaries. So that's where you get this phrase, disintermediation, cutting publishers out of the value chain. Um, this is a huge <coughs> problem, actually, and most publishers are incredibly complacent about it. They, don't, they, they tend to think publishers, oh, we've always been here, we're always valuable, um, therefore we always will be. And I just think that's a bonkers way to think, actually, because it's, it's all going to be fine until actually everyone deserts you. And what we've already seen is the rise of self-publishing. We've seen Amazon self-publishing uh, arms. We've seen all of these new startups that are offering things. So actually, I think publishing has got this question. It needs a good answer of what it is, what it does. It needs something that ties it together and provides a bit of a narrative about what we do. And, and this is why I decided to write the book. So the starting point, I think, for all publishing has to be content. There's no such thing as publishing without content. Everything else comes from that. And books really are what I call frames for content. So, you know, you have the writing, and then you have a book, and it frames it. Um, for most of history, what these frames, books, have really been about is they're a distribution mechanism. So, you're putting content in a book in order to distribute it. And actually, you know, in a world of scarcity, of uh, print resources, of paper, of everything, this was the real value of a book. It just meant that you could distribute your words, you could take them everywhere. Um, and that's what the framing element of books are really about. Um, I think at this juncture, it's important that I say is everyone thinks that suddenly in a digital world, you know, we get rid of frames for content. But that's not actually true. What it means 
is that friends are involved. If books are a frame for a content, then so is HTML code, so is a screen, so is um, all of those server stacks lying behind Amazon. These are all frames. There's no such thing as, uh, a con as content that doesn't have a frame. So digital frames are different and they do change, but they're still frames nonetheless. Um, but I think the key thing that I want to say is that for most of history, frames have been about distributing content, but that's never been just what they've done. There are two elements to framing. One, just distributing, but two, the way you frame content produces uh, impressions. It creates a kind of an aura around that content. You know, the way you frame a painting, it's not just putting it in a frame, it's sending you signals about what that content is. Um, so look, take these as sort of examples. You've got a Milton Moon, a little cheap paperback over there. That's saying, this book is a sort of a romance, it's something that you read on the beach and then maybe you throw away. And this book, a grand august tome with a big crest of Oxford University Press, this is saying, this is a serious academic book. So the books themselves, the frames, are not just distributing the content, they're sending messages about the content as well. They are shaping the way we read the books, they're shaping the way we understand the content. So, all publishing is about content. All content needs to be framed. But, and frames have these two elements to them. And this is where I think we start to get to the heart of publishing. What changes in the digital world is that the framing element of distributing has become much, much easier. It hasn't gone away. But the fact is, it's much easier to distribute content now than it ever has been in history. But that doesn't mean it's easy to find readers. That doesn't mean anyone wants to read your stuff. So actually, the role of publishing in the digital world has become less about the distributional side of framing and more about the subjective side of framing. So if publishers used to be makers of books, now they need to be makers of audiences. Um, and that, to me, is the key shift that we see in the digital world. You know, what we need to do is we need to create markets for books. We're not just printing the books. Um, the, the core notion, then, of publishing as I see it, is amplification. What do I mean by amplification? All I mean is making a work encountered more widely than it otherwise would be. So it's an intermediation in the process that just takes books to a wider audience. And this is it. This is my little theory of publishing, is that publishing is framing content and amplifying it by framing it. That's basically it. And wherever you look at publishing, if you go back to ancient China and the kind of very earliest publishing houses there, if you go to Silicon Valley and look at the new startups there, there's still you find those core attributes. They're always there. So publishing constantly changes, but there are these kind of fundamental mechanisms that tend to kind of stay the same. But then underlying the whole thing is the idea of what I call models. So you're not just amplifying and framing content for no reason. You're doing it for very specific reasons. And these I call models. And models might be to make a lot of money. Uh, it might be to uh, give glory to the Communist Party. Uh, it might be to spread your religion. Um, 
but you always have a reason, so you always have a model of what you're trying to achieve. Um, and my theory is that almost all publishing models are a mixture of financial return and sort of cultural factors, for want of a better word. Um, I think there always is an economic component to publishing, because publishing, whether that's producing frames for distribution, producing these more subjective frames, it takes resources. So publishing needs resource to happen, and resource needs money from somewhere. So you cannot avoid this um, financial element. But you know, sometimes publishers are accused of being rapacious capitalists, only interested in um, profiting from their poor authors. But that's not true, actually. I've never met a publisher, really, that's like that. Publishers are always thinking about other things. They think about, is this a good book? Um, is this interesting? Is this saying something good? Is it making a contribution? Um, if you're only looking at the money, you're not being a good publisher. You have to look at everything else as well. And sometimes publishers are seen as being these sort of dilettantes who don't care about money and don't understand business. But that's not true either. So I think you always have this balance of these two models that there's always a necessary balance that underlies this work of amplifying content. Um, so that's sort of it, really. Now maybe you don't even need to read the book because that's the kind of digestive read. Um, the, 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 key, the, the messages really are that it's not obvious what publishing is. Um, I really think that uh, even though you've got all these hundreds of thousands of people, maybe millions around the world working in publishing industries, you know, what are they doing really? They're sitting at their desks, sending a lot of emails. Somehow the publishing happens. Um, so I think it's not obvious. Um, what definitely is true is even if that's not a pressing problem for publishers, the fact of the digital network itself is a pressing question for all kinds of publishers. And that means that we have to start to confront what it is that we do, where we add value, why. Um, all publishing is about content, and it's about the framing of content. Amplification is why we're framing content. We want to take it to more people, more widely, than otherwise would have been the case. We're not doing that, we're not doing anything. And publishing always has these models that underlie it as well. And I tend to think, in almost all cases, they are a blend of financial and non-financial concerns. And actually, if you're not blending financial and non-financial concerns, you're probably not going to be around very long. So that's the kind of the context, really, that, that I um, sort of see publishing as, as being in. I think what really interested me about thinking about all of that was going into the history of it and the history of where publishing has come from and how it's always been on the forefront of technology. That's one thing, actually, that I think was really interesting in writing the book, is people tend to look at publishers today and they think, oh, God, you know, it's just all these stuffy people who don't understand technological change and all of that. Um, actually, when you look at the history of publishing, the tradition of publishing, it's always been right on the cutting edge, you know, from the very first industrial processes with Gutenberg um, to the first inventions of copyright, the first joint stock holding companies, some of the first applications of steam power, some of the earliest international conglomeration, um, some of the first advertising, some of the first consumer gifts and creating a whole kind of economy of gifts around Christmas, all of these kind of things. Um, publishers were right there at the beginning. Um, so I actually think if, if we want to kind of stay true to the heritage, really, of publishing, then you have to stay right on the cutting edge. And that, that was the most fun message, I think, that I got when I was doing that. Um, 
The other thing that I want to talk about, so that, that's the, the theory. Um, let's look at the practice now. I'll just watch the time, because I, I know I have to wrap it through. Um, let's look at what it means to be a digital publisher more specifically. Because I think all this, the theory is really important. Um, and it's more, more importantly, it's interesting. Um, and that's why I think it's really worth looking at. But what's going on uh, today? Um, before we go into all of the totally modern stuff, it's worth looking back just a little bit at how we got here. Um, actually, you know, we tend to think that ebooks maybe started, uh, well, I don't know, seven or eight years ago, but it was really in the late 90s that um, ebooks first got started and they got sucked into the whole late 90s boom. Um, up there, that's Project Gutenberg, and that's from the 1970s. Uh, and it was Michael Hart, the guy behind that, that really invented the idea of the ebook. Um, there's a little PWC sign down here, the accountancy firm, uh, because in the late 90s they predicted that um, by about 2003, ebooks would have almost eclipsed print books. Um, everyone thought that was going to happen. Uh, of course, it didn't work out like that. Um, the dot com boom turned to the bust. Uh, e-books were a massive part of that. All these publishers who perhaps thought, oh god, this digital publishing stuff's gonna happen, breathed a huge sigh of relief. They thought, this is great. We don't have to confront all of this messy, difficult digital stuff. Um, and so I think actually, although there was all of this sort of fervor there in the 90s, that meant that people just went back to business as usual. Um, I think a lot of publishers thought, oh, actually, this whole internet thing is fine. It's, it's sort of, it's there, it's separate, and we just get on with, with making our books. Well, why did that change? Um, I think the first thing was that the web came back, and in about maybe 2004, 2005, um, you started getting the beginnings of the web 2.0 boom. Um, you started to see all of these new companies, you know, the Facebooks and the YouTube. This was around the time that they were coming back. Um, suddenly, the web was looking a bit interesting again. Suddenly, there was more energy around it. There was more action. Um, even perhaps, there was innovation. Um, and so, I think people started paying attention again. Um, then, of course, there was what happened to the record industry and the fact that they had this disastrous run from Napster in 99 onwards. And actually, that was uncomfortably close for publishers. Um, there's endless discussion of how much you can compare the record industry and the book publishing industry. It doesn't really matter, because if you see an industry that close, um, basically you know, declining or something like that, it's worse, it was a sort of 30% year-on-year decline, um, that's a disaster for that industry. So that really made people sit up and take notice. And then there was what was happening to content more widely. The newspapers, of course, had suddenly just put their price at free. If you wanted to read stuff in the, in the analog world, you would have had to go into a shop and pay money to read a newspaper. But now you'd just go on the internet and read it for free. So there was a sense that this was a business problem, that actually, if you were going to be expecting people to pay good money for uh, uh, books, then, you know, how can you just exist in this world of free content as well? Um, 
so you had these three factors, really, um, that was, were leading to publishers to start to think about things again. And it was at that moment that I came into the digital publishing world. And I knew that I'd always been interested in technology, and I'd always loved reading. And that, that was the area that I wanted to be in. Um, and at first, there was nothing to do. You know, we were just sitting there playing with these web tools. We were even playing with Second Life and things like that. Um, the real moment when stuff started to change was when Waterstones uh, adopted the Sony Reader, and that was in 2007. And that was the first time that sort of a major tech company uh, and a major book retailer got together and said, right, we're going to make this whole ebook thing a reality. And that was the first time as well that there was a real kind of program of digital publishing, there was real revenues coming in from digital publishing, and some people started to take it seriously. Um, so here's just a summary. Um, what really changed things, of course, was that um, the big tech giants moved in as well. And if you're talking about the book world, none is bigger than Amazon. Um, what were they thinking? Well, they already owned the reading space. And Bezos has said that you know, he'd always intended for Amazon to kind of build the ebook company, as well as sort of print retail company, and he was just waiting for the opportunity. Um, he wanted to be the one to completely shape and generally own the whole space. And to a large extent, that is how it's turned out. But it was when the muscle of Amazon moved in uh, that things really took off. And actually, it was one Christmas, the Christmas, um, the Christmas is sort of 2010, 2011, that was the biggest single set change in ebook adoption. Amazon went all out with their ad campaign. And there was Google as well. Google have been sniffing around books for a while with their book scanning program. You know, they want to uh, index all the information in the world, every last drop of this sort of limitless thing information they want, including all of the books. So they started doing that uh, in the middle part of the last decade. And that was interesting. Uh, that got a lot of publishers worried. Um, but eventually, that's become a bit of a sideshow. Um, now, of course, Google has Google Play, uh, Android is a massive platform, and we see them grow. And then I think the last really transformational moment um, was with the launch of the iPad, um, because that was when you saw this whole sort of, the, the ecosystem of mobile really becoming a reality for book reading. Um, Apple had already owned the, the music selling space for iTunes, and now they were going to own books as well. So, you've gone from this situation where everyone in publishing just assumed that nothing was ever going to happen in digital. You then had these currents, these sort of some exciting, some worrying currents swirling around. And then the last piece of the puzzle, you have the West Coast technology giants piling in. And actually, what they bring, they bring that scale, they bring that investment, they bring the ambition. Um, and the book publishing industry simply isn't able to just reach that number of customers that easily. Um, but you combine what was already there in terms of the content with these huge platforms, and then suddenly this is something now that no publisher around the world can ignore. Um, everyone has to be thinking about it, and everyone really is. Um, so, ebooks for back. And now we'll go to a new presentation.
Um, there's some microphone issue. Uh, so that's the kind of the context that I think is important to think about. On the one hand, you've got this kind of theoretical context of actually what is publishing, what's digital publishing, what does it mean? Uh, and then on the other hand, you've got this kind of uh, long con or, or sort of intermediate context of maybe the past 20 years or so and how the industry has developed. And, and both of that, those have led to the situation that I'm now going to describe. Um, I'm not going to go into massive detail there because there's loads of examples and things here, loads of different case studies. I think I just want to pull out some of the highlights and maybe show one or two videos or something like that. I don't know, is, is there sound rigged to this? Oh, well, we'll see. Um, right. Um, as I said before, uh, ebooks on their own don't equal disruption. An ebook is just a book. Um, everything about an ebook generally is the same as a print book. It's the same words. Um, it goes through all the same editorial processes. Um, it has a sales team, it has the same publicity. I mean, it even has a production department that's working on it. Um, ebooks are pretty much mirror the print book in every way. Um, the business model of most ebooks is still the same as the print business model. So when anyone says ebooks are this crazy disruption, and actually, luckily, people have tended to stop saying that, don't believe it. It's ebooks in the network that is the, the, the key disruption. Of course, I won't go into all this because I suspect you know the EPUB was the breakthrough in the standard. Um, and actually, the challenge for publishers was to get their ebook workflow sorted. Um, that's the kind of slightly boring thing that um, you might think is easy, but actually, getting this right was surprisingly difficult. Because introducing a whole new workflow into any organization is always going to be difficult. Um, when it's things that are as fiddly as books, and the one thing that I never cease to be amazed by is how fiddly books are, and then you multiply that over the whole publishing program. And actually, getting this right has been quite difficult. But I think we're mainly there. Um, these are just two partners that we use. Um, so we have a bibliographic database where everything is stored and all our information just feeds out automatically. That's really key. Um, and we have a very strong ebook partner who can get all of our files out to all of the retailers. Um, as I'm sure everyone's been saying to you, um, actually just that the whole thing of distributing book metadata and book files is inordinately complex. Every retailer has its own requirements. So let's say you're distributing to 15 people, you might have to redo the metadata 15 times over for every individual book. So actually having somebody who is kind of a weapons-grade system is really important. Um, I won't talk too much about this stuff, um, because you know it. Um, what I will talk about is how do you sell an ebook? because the main way you sell a print book is it's in a bookshop and it's on the shelf, people see it and they like it. So let's say the classic user journey of um, traditional publishing would have been this. Uh, somebody reads their book review of a book in The Guardian. Uh, they then walk to their local independent bookstore and they see the book on a table at the front and then they buy it at full price. And that's great. And at profile, we're an independent publisher, and that's still our lifeblood. That's still the thing that we absolutely care about and love.
But we also have to engage with the new thing. Um, so what sells ebooks? Price is absolutely critical. Um, you have to be cheap. There is a real price war going on. If you're pricing yourself out of the market, it's very difficult. Even I find it. I didn't buy a novel uh, at the weekend because it was $9.99 um, on ebook, and I just thought, no, that feels very expensive. Promotion. Are you getting into the uh, emails? Are you getting onto the front page? This is so important, actually. Um, people in ebook, they tend to just look at what's in front of them. They don't tend to dig down very deep. Um, they just want to see what's on the front page. So getting the promotion is critical. Are people talking about your book online? If so, it's good because they'll send out links and people can do it. These impulse buys are what's really powerful about ebooks. You were watching a TV program about, um, you were watching, say, Great British Bake Off. Um, people are tweeting about it. Someone tweets a link to buy, bam, you buy, you download, you've got the recipes there. Um, the jackets are important, um, and I'll show you why in a second. Brand names, very important on the internet. Um, people want familiar things. Good metadata. Um, how many publishers make mistakes on their metadata? An unbelievable amount. If you're putting your book in the wrong category, people won't find it. If there are spelling mistakes, people won't find it. If you haven't put all of your keywords in right, you're not going to be maximizing the SEO. And lastly, of course, reviews. So these things are what sells ebooks. Um, this happens in the context of shrinking windows. Book, uh, book review sections of newspapers being cut. Bookshops closing and getting smaller. Media time for books getting less. All of this means that the traditional ways in which we show our books are, are in real trouble. And it's our job and our challenge is to find new ones. Um, this is just because we did this at very low price. It's done very well. Um, so let's just quickly go through this um, with a book that has been an uh, absolute big seller this year. It was just shortlisted for the Book Prize. Alas, it didn't win. Um, but it's still been a phenomenal ebook bestseller. Um, it was number one for quite a few weeks. Um, when we were number one, we were selling it very cheap, 189. Why? Because it was in a summer reading promotion. So that meant it was on a uh, special offer and people were being channeled towards this promotion. It's what they were going to when they were going on holiday. Um, it's classic ebook content as well. What's selling ebook? Women's fiction, commercial fiction, um, thrillers, that kind of thing. This is the exact kind of content people want to read on ebook. Um, I mean, this is quite a sort of relatively highbrow for the kind of stuff that shifts in huge quantities. Um, it's worth, worth also mentioning, of course, that we're paying 20% back on each of these copies. Um, this book was driven by word of mouth. And all of that that I said before about sales, price, promotion, buzz, it's word of mouth is what sells books ultimately. And it's this sort of elixir that every publisher would love to crack, and no publisher can crack, except when they get lucky. Um, and the other thing to say is the cover. You know, a really bold, but simple, distinctive cover. Remember, on ebook, people are only looking at the covers as very small little things, so you need something that really stands out. Um, of course, ebooks also raise all of these questions. They raise questions about copyright, about piracy, about digital rights management, software that locks it all down. Um, you know, the number of people that get very excised about all of this, that say, oh, you know, publishers should be cracking down on the pirates. 
Fine, but actually that's not what I believe we should be doing. I believe we should be focusing on being good publishers, not just sort of getting our knickers in a twist about all of these issues. Let's just focus on being the best we can be um, before we start going mad. Um, one thing that we at Profile are doing, it started, Verso did a big uh, thing with it uh, as well, um, is working with this company, Bookstream, the social DRM. And that's where you don't lock down a file, it's where you put somebody's name in a file. So before they share it with the entire internet, they might think twice, but they would share it with their friends. Um, and I think this is a kind of a good happy medium. So uh, Verso did a big thing where all of their ebooks that people bought from their website um, were socially DRM by Bookstream, and now we're talking to Bookstream a lot as well. So we think this is a really good balance. Um, this whole ebook transition is where we are now, where ebooks form this key piece of the market. Uh, it was tough for a lot of publishers. They didn't like it, and they felt that the book itself was under threat. They felt that digital culture and ebooks was about destroying print books, about dismantling this sort of huge and magnificent edifice of, of the Gutenberg mind and the Gutenberg world. Um, and so there was a bit of anxiety and, and hand-wringing about that and anger. I've always thought that none of this is about attacking the book or dismantling the book or anything like that. To me, it's about saving the book, actually, from uh, just this sort of falling into irrelevance or greater irrelevance. Or, I don't like using that word, so in fact, forget I said that. Um, it's about just making sure that we're staying on top of things, that we're not just going to kind of lose out to all of these new technologies. So I see print books and e-books as being a complete complement, as being an outgrowth of one another, and as being in dialogue. And I think now we're getting to the phase where the whole sort of publishing world feels the same as well. Um, we are making money, it is working, it is fine. Um, the next thing I was going to talk about was digital marketing, but we, we really don't have the time, I'm afraid. So uh, you'll just have to catch up on that. Instead, we're going to skip forward to app publishing. Um, app publishing is an odd one. Um, it's both the most potentially exciting area of digital publishing, and it's also fraught with risk. It's very difficult, um, it's, it's just a kind of mad, mad world, uh, which may be why I do quite like it. Um, so, uh, all you've really got when you're talking about app publishing is two marketplaces. You've got the App Store, Apple, and you've got Google Play on Android. Um, the App Store is still uh, the leader, especially in the UK. Um, around the world, Android has a much larger in-store base, but in the UK, um, it really is just about the App Store. And we know that people spend more money in the App Store. Um, you know, it's delivered 10 billion uh, to app publishers in 2013. Um, it's now going at over a billion dollars a month, just sort of churning through the App Store. It's really big business, um, which does cause problems as well. Um, the big problems of app publishing are price. What's happened in app publishing is that free-to-play has become the absolute dominant model. 
And if your app has a price, any price, you're in a different world to if you're not. So even by saying we're going to charge money now, you've created this enormous barrier to entry. Yet if you're just going free to, free to play, then you're effectively just in a big fight with Candy Crush for these little micropayments. So that's very, diff very difficult as well. The other difficulty with app publishing is this enormous kind of concentration on one shop window. And this is another aspect of what I want to talk about in curation. So let's say on uh, the iOS app store, you've got about, uh, no one knows the exact number, but maybe two and a half to three million apps now. Um, and you've got one tiny window, the app store, updated weekly to display all of those apps. Now that, to me, is a problem of curation. How do you curate the app store most effectively to, to give uh, users what they want or to show new things or to challenge people? It's an enormously difficult problem. But that means that if you are working with apps, you are immediately competing with every single other media format on Earth. You're not just competing with Candy Crush. You're competing with every film, every piece of music, every magazine. So this is just a phenomenally competitive space where the price has become free and the development costs are high. Um, so here, here's one of the things to think about. Um, which category are you going for? Um, well, I've always worked in books, then I've done education, um, and now I've done one in games that we'll see all of this. And the difference between games and everything else is vast. It really makes a difference. It really makes a difference. And can you persuade Apple to merchandise the app? It's going back to the curation. If they put it on the front page, you're in a good position. If they don't, and remember there's a very good chance of them not doing it, you're not. Um, the one thing that I would say about Apple in particular is that they are extraordinarily fair-minded about things um, in terms of their merchandising, and they really want quality. So if you produce just some cynical, crappy app, they're not going to show it. If you go to town and produce something, even just with a very small team, that is just wonderful, they really will look at it. And of course, the US is the great big market. Um, producing an app is like producing a fiddly complex book times 10. Because you've not just got the writers to work with, you've not just got artists or composers, you've got developers, you've got a whole lot of business people, um, the whole uh, nature of software development in general is such that everything is always late, everything always goes wrong. Um, so apps are not easy. But this is, I guess, what I'm saying. This is why the whole of the publishing world uh, cycles through these bouts of great enthusiasm for apps, followed by these sort of hungover moments where they say, oh, we're never going to produce apps again. Um, and, and, but they keep coming back for more, despite all of these challenges, and I think there is a good reason for that. Um, these are just some examples of some early uh, app work that I'd, I'd worked on, uh, which were all great and fun. Um, this is the app that uh, I think was one of the first apps that I worked on that really was actually doing something very, very new, and this was Frankenstein. We'll just see, um, well actually I don't think we've got time to watch this video. Um, I'm very conscious of the now. Um, this was an app we produced today, uh, sorry, today, this year, called Incredible Numbers. Um, and I would urge you to go and have a look at that as well. Uh, we produced it with TouchPress, 
they're one of the world's leading um, app developers, and they're based in London, and they've done things like Disney Animated, the Admin, the Solar System. So this was an app that was really taking maths in a whole new direction. <laughs> this, this is one that we produced this year, um, but it's really published and produced by a company called Inkle. Uh, who are an amazing Cambridge-based studio, um, just two guys at the core of it. Uh, they were the same people who we worked on Frankenstein with. Um, in fact, we as a profile are just the supporting publisher. Um, what I'd say about people like Touchpress and Inkle, these are fantastic producers. They really are the best of the best. And if you're not working with the very best developers and studios, then you're never going to get anywhere. And 80 Days really has been a phenomenon. 80 Days uh, is what I think is just a brilliant meeting of a game and a novel. It's obviously an adaptation of the Jules Verne novel. Um, it was Editor's Choice uh, in the UK and the US. And Editor's Choice is the single best listing you can get on the App Store. And getting it is, I mean, it's sort of just extraordinarily hard. If you think um, the, the game that was uh, Editor's Choice the week before us, was a triple-A, probably large seven-figure budget game. This is something that was um, produced by um, two guys in Cambridge. It was written by a writer called Meg Giant. She wrote nearly uh, half a million words in eight months, so it was, it was a crazy process. Um, but it does start to pay off. You know, we were number two uh, in the paid download charts in the UK, number four in the US. Um, we're still selling a lot every day today. Um, so something about 80 days, it was a huge risk. We never knew whether it would work. Um, it was a lot of um, hard work from the team that did it. Um, but it did pay off in the end. And what's most exciting to me about 80 Days, Incredible Numbers and things like that, is it's, it's still pushing the frontier of what is possible. And that, that's why it's really interesting and really exciting. Um, I don't have much time to talk about it, so I need to skip on. We're, we're very late. But the other thing that I will talk about is the series that um, I'm working with, with Danny, who's here, and with um, a lot of other writers, and that's called Ideas and Profile. And that's trying to take the best of print publishing um, with the best of what's possible in the digital world and really kind of put out these new big ideas books that are about the kind of big uh, topics, mainly sort of academic topics that really matter. And to do it in a very accessible style, but also have a visual element. So in the ebooks, we have animation. In the print books, we have these images, and it just creates a lovely package. It's just about saying, no, we're not just satisfied to just sort of put out the same product in the digital environment. We want to try and make the most of it, but equally, we want to have these wonderful print books as well. And that's the kind of goal of that. And that's this sort of a big series that we really are pushing around the world. Um, and it's a very kind of long-term plan for us to build up and to build up. Um, and I can't say, Danny, we are only working with the very best writers. So um, that's the key plan for it. If you're not working with the best writers, nobody cares. So you need to. Um, right, I'll just quickly finish up by going to the very last uh, part. I, I, I know, it's crazy. This, this, uh, uh, there's, a, there's a story about it. Um, so the new publisher is this phrase that's been bandied around. And I think the person who was first really using it was Stephen Page, the CEO of Faber and Faber. And it's something that I'm really interested, interested in. Because what I think it sort of behoves all of us, really, is to invent the new publisher. 
to try and be in that great spirit of publishing that says, we want to be on the cutting edge, we want to be on the forefront, we're going to constantly be about framing and amplifying content in new ways and better ways, rather than the kind of the cutting edge. Um, I think a lot of people are really down on content. You know, you speak to people in Silicon Valley, and it's a dirty word there. They just think of that as sort of something to kind of maybe suck in a few eyeballs for their platform or whatever. But actually, what I want this slide to show is that content is still extremely valuable. You know, if you've got Game of Thrones, that's some of the most valuable content in the world, and it's more valuable than ever. If you've got Mickey Mouse, well, kids are probably still going to want to watch Disney films in 50 years' time. Will they be using Netflix? No one knows. So although people tend to think that all the value has gone to the platforms, I still think there's a good argument that a lot of the value stays with content. Um, and also, the new publisher has been with us for quite a long time. Um, you know, Wikipedia, websites, this is new publishing. This always was new publishing to me. And now I think businesses are starting to catch up. We've got this whole wave of new content-centric startups that are really having an impact. You know, BuzzFeed has got all of these ambitions to become this really kind of creditable, interesting news source. Vice is breaking uh, big news stories all the time. You know, that's why it's become a $2 billion valuation on Vice Media, and it's just this gone-so-online thing, or at least it was. Um, Vox is a company that I admire hugely, and I'd say go and look at all of their blogs. Look at, look at a company like Quartz. Quartz is a, well, a, a, a publication. Quartz was started up within the Atlantic Group with the brief of, if you were going to start a magazine or a newspaper today, what would it look like? So I think there's all of this energy in this area around new publishing. And I think it's just starting to hit book publishing as well. Um, if you want to see some of that, if you Google digital publishing startups, you'll see this Google document that I keep, which just is a list of all of the startups in this area. And I'm amazed at the traffic. You know, every month I get like three or four thousand people looking at this. Um, and if, if you Google it, it'll just come up. And it's a great demonstration of what's interesting. So, uh, very quickly, five startups to watch. The Creativist, very interesting platform um, for making books and communities. Bitlit, Bitlit ties uh, print books to ebooks. So if you own the print book already, you get a free or massively discounted ebook. And I think that's a very powerful model because people want the physical world and the digital world to talk. People already feel they own a book, they feel they should have it in all formats. So I think this is a very exciting uh, thing. Um, Unbound. Um, you could just call it Kickstarter for books, but it's this whole idea of you know getting getting people in before the book is published. I think that's a really interesting concept. So I'm going to be very interested in how Unbound uh, progresses. Open access, mainly relevant to uh, academic and scientific and technical medical uh, communication, but this is a fundamental change in the basic model of how publishing works. Um, it's a change to uh, the whole copyright regime, and it's a change to the whole financing regime of academic publishing. And slowly but surely, it is having a huge, huge impact, and it's just fascinating to watch, I think. Um, and then lastly, Oyster. Oyster is a subscription service. So the model of Oyster is akin to the model of Spotify or Netflix against the download model of iTunes or Kindle. And I have no doubt that this is the natural way of consuming uh, digital content. Um, everyone assumes that everything changes overnight, um, but it doesn't. Actually, what we've seen is this kind of constant but 
fairly gradual change. Every year things change a little bit more and a little bit more. Um, so anyone asks you about what the sort of the real kind of story of digital blockchain, it's that, I would say. So thank you.